This podcast may not be suitable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Crime Shack. Wanted to take a quick second to thank each of you for tuning into this podcast and being the absolute best supporters. If you haven't done so already, go follow me on social media. I'm on both Instagram and TikTok. It's a great way to comment on my most recent podcast episodes, drop your opinions and thoughts, and stay up to date on the latest cases. If you'd like to help support this show, you can head over to my socials, click the link in my bio and buy me a coffee or support my sponsors. All support is appreciated and helps me to continue to put out amazing content. This episode was originally released to my former Patreon subscribers only, and it's definitely one of the most intriguing and bizarre unsolved cases out there. If you want to dig in and do a really deep dive on the case, there are numerous forums you can be a part of on Reddit and other community platforms. The case I'll be talking about took place in a small rural town in the state of Georgia in an exclusive gated residential community. It's a stark reminder that violent crimes can sadly happen to anyone, anywhere, even in the seemingly safest of communities. So let's dive into the perplexing and gruesome murders of Russell and Shirley Dermond. Putnam County, Georgia is a fairly small, charming southern community of about 22,000 residents and lies roughly about 80 miles southeast of Atlanta, Georgia. Two lakes border the county, Lake Oconee and Lake Sinclair, resulting in the county to be known as Georgia's Lake Country. Aside from having a history of being a respite for wounded soldiers during the Civil War and being known for their dairy farming, Putnam County is unfortunately also famous for being the location of a heinous double murder that occurred back in 2014. Within the county of Putnam is the city of Eatonton. The town has country-themed boutiques and cafes and hosts retirement communities, lakefront properties, and golf courses. As you're driving down into Eatonton, signs are scattered along the sides of the road, luring you to buy local pecans, peaches, raw honey, and boiled peanuts. And it's in Eatonton, Georgia, where elderly couple, 88-year-old Russell, and 87-year-old Shirley Derman decided to set up a retirement home along the shoreline of Lake Oconee. A native of Hackensack, New Jersey, Russell Derman served in the United States Navy during World War II. He met Shirley Wilcox, also a native of New Jersey, and the two married on December 15, 1950. They started a family, had three sons and a daughter, and ultimately had nine grandchildren, and moved the family to Roswell, Georgia. The Germans were very religious and were described by family and friends as the most wonderful people you could ever meet, and that they were loved by everyone. Each summer, the Dermans' grandchildren would head to Russell and Shirley's home at Lake Oconee to attend summer camp. Over their 63 years of marriage, the Dermans had built up quite a nest egg. 
Russell owned 19 Hardee's franchises, or Carl's Jr. if you're a West Coasterner, in Atlanta before he retired in 1994. The couple then set their sights onto a gated lakeside community, Great Waters Reynolds Plantation, which was located about 12 miles northeast of Eatonton and was built around a Jack Nicholas-designed golf course. It was there at 147 Caroline Drive that the Dermans built a million-dollar, 4,225-square-foot, four-bedroom, five-bathroom home in the gated subdivision on a wooded private lot overlooking Lake Oconee. The home was nestled in a cul-de-sac, and the house was far enough away and secluded from neighbors to afford the couple total privacy. The house even had its own private dock to the lake. The subdivision where they lived was one of those where everyone knew their neighbors, and if strangers were in town or a strange car was parked on a nearby street, the neighbors would know about it. Although they were retired and well into their 80s, the Dermans were constantly active. Russell was a golf enthusiast and enjoyed reading and walking, and Shirley was a writer and an artist who had a passion for gardening, was an avid bridge player, and loved working crossword puzzles. On Thursday, May 1st, 2014, it was a cool spring day when Russell ventured out that afternoon to run some errands before dinner. Around 2.15 p.m., he drove through People's Bank to transfer some money for an upcoming insurance payment. About 10 minutes later, Russell, wearing dark sunglasses, khaki shorts, a green polo shirt, and dark gym shoes, dropped by Public Supermarket to pick up a prescription for Shirley for her upcoming cataract surgery and also grabbed a loaf of bread and some cucumbers. He drove back home and when arriving at his house, called his youngest son Brad and they chatted for a few minutes. The couple's mail was delivered that afternoon at 4.30 p.m. Two days later, on Saturday, May 3rd, the Dermans were scheduled to attend a Kentucky Derby party at a neighbor's home, but never showed up and never called their neighbors to tell them they weren't coming. This was unusual, as the Dermans never missed an event at Great Waters. Three days later, on Tuesday, May 6th, at around 10 a.m., the party's hostess asked mutual friends if they would take some roses from the party over to the Dermans to check on them. The friends then headed over to 147 Caroline Drive. Margaret Peggy Wynn and her husband Huell arrived at the Dermans and approached the screen porch. They noticed that a newspaper laid untouched in the driveway. Peggy and her husband walked up the steps. They knocked on the door but got no answer, so they tried the doorknob. The door was unlocked. They entered the house and called out for Russell and Shirley but got no response. They searched around the sprawling home and yelled out again for their friends. Huell then went outside and walked the length of the two-car garage, whose doors were closed. And when he peered inside one of the windows into the garage, he saw a body. He yelled out to Peggy, who then frantically called 911. Putnam County Emergency Services answered the call. Putnam County 911. Yes, I have an emergency. Okay, I think I have somebody dead. Peggy quickly gave the dispatcher the Dermans' address. 
Two officers from Putnam County Sheriff's, Daryl Turk and Barack Wood, arrived at the Germans' house at 10.09 a.m., followed by Chief Deputy Russell Blank, Lieutenant John Murphy, and Putnam County Sheriff Howard Sills. The officers searched the home, then made their way to the outside. They went to the garage, and when they opened the garage door, there lay Russell Dermond. His decapitated body was lying on the concrete floor, situated behind and between a beige Lincoln and a blue Lexus SUV. Russell's faded red t-shirt was slightly raised over his stomach, exposing his belly button down to the waistband of his blue and white striped boxer shorts. The shorts were covered in dried blood. His body was laying on top of his bunched up robe. Russell seemed to be placed there purposefully, and it was obvious that the decapitation had been performed post-mortem as there was a lack of blood spatter from the arterial wound. Different colored towels were lined up near the garage door around the pools of blood that were emanating from his neck, preventing the blood from seeping underneath the garage door and onto the driveway. A large amount of blood and bodily fluids were pulled at the top of his body. Whoever had done this had thought it through and made sure that it would take some time to discover the body. Behind the Lincoln, Sheriff Sills located a blood spot on the garage floor. It looked as if something round had been placed there. Russell's feet were bare and blotchy with bloodstains. His feet left a smeared, dull red trail of blood from the door to his body. His brown loafer slippers were tossed haphazardly next to his body. His upper body and arms were in line with the back of the Lexus. His hands were bruised and bloody, and his left index finger had a severe gash. Intertwined within the blood on his finger were strands of sandy blonde hair, which would later be identified as Shirley's hair. It appeared that Russell may have struggled with the perpetrator or perpetrators in trying to protect his wife. It was clear to investigators that Russell's body had been there for a while, so they knew it would be unlikely that the perpetrators would still be anywhere near the scene. They began looking through the home in more detail. The home was immaculate and nothing seemed out of place. In the kitchen, the prescription that Russell picked up from Publix was on the kitchen counter. A laptop was sitting open on the dining room table, along with a pair of glasses inside an open case. A U.S. Today crossword puzzle was left incomplete on the kitchen table with a pencil on top. Also on the counter was a jewelry bag with a beaded necklace on top of it, sitting next to a Netflix movie rental. The officers went to the couple's bedroom. The couple's bed was unmade and the comforter was pulled down over a bench at the end of the bed and the throw pillows were tossed on the floor. Some clothes were placed on a chair and shoes were underneath. A pair of khaki shorts, a green polo shirt and dark gym shoes, the clothes that Russell wore to Publix that day, were also in the room. Shirley's slippers were underneath a pink ottoman. On her vanity were two black purses, a little bit of cash, some makeup, perfume, and makeup brushes. 
The house looked so untouched that it seemed as if the couple had been interrupted immediately after they'd woken up. There was no evidence of a struggle and no signs of forced entry into the home, but two obvious things were still missing. Russell's head and Shirley Dermond. A major investigation began and the search for Shirley was underway. Authorities didn't know if she'd been abducted, if she left and was involved in the murder of her husband, or if she had also been taken somewhere else and murdered. Media and news outlets displayed Shirley's photo, and her picture was put up on billboards all over the state. The FBI became involved in the investigation, along with additional law enforcement agencies. Lake Oconee was searched with sonar equipment and drag hooks, and cadaver dogs were brought in to search the nearby woods for any leads on Shirley's scent. But nothing turned up. On May 8th, an autopsy was conducted on Russell's body. It showed that whoever had decapitated Russell knew what he was doing. The cut was clean. Gunshot residue was found on the collar of Russell's shirt, and because there were no other injuries to his body, it was assumed that he'd been shot in the head. It was also assumed that the head was taken not as some macabre trophy, but to prevent police from obtaining and matching the bullet. Russell's cause of death was craniocerebral trauma due to a single clean cut that transected the cervical vertebral body. The manner of death was homicide. Russell was positively identified by his fingerprints, which were on file with the U.S. Navy from his time served. On Friday, May 16th, around 2.30 in the afternoon, 10 days after Russell's body was found, 53-year-old Dennis Higgs and 65-year-old Ronald Sorrell were fishing on Lake Oconee when they spotted something on the lake inside a group of standing timber. They were just a short distance from the Wallace Dam, so they thought it might be a buoy. As they got closer, they realized it was not a buoy, but a body. Dennis Higgs immediately called 911. Floating face down in the lake was a woman's body. Her grayish colored body was bloated from being in the water so long, causing it to float to the surface. By 3 p.m., a police rescue crew retrieved the body from the water and hoisted it up onto a large blue tarp inside their boat. They immediately saw that the body had two 30-pound red cinder blocks tied around both of the woman's ankles and over her white socks with a parachute cord in an effort to weigh her down. The cement blocks were inside of a bluish-gray mesh bag that was a little bit larger than a laundry bag. The 5-foot, 2-inch woman was confirmed to be Shirley Dermond. She was found approximately 5 to 6 miles from the Dermans' home. She was wearing army green capri pants with wet tissues in her pocket, a water-stained brown and tan floral short-sleeve shirt, and size 8 white Easy Spirit shoes with orthopedic inserts. On May 17th, an autopsy was conducted on Shirley, and she was positively identified by dental records. The report stated that Shirley's skull was fractured, 
which caused hemorrhaging in her brain. Her injuries were made with a circular weapon, such as a hammer. She was struck at least twice, and the cause of death was listed as blunt impact injury of the head. Her manner of death was homicide, assaulted by others. The coroner also determined she was dead when she was put into the lake. A brutal attack had occurred on the Dermans, and it was now evident that they were not attacked inside the home, as there was no blood evidence or blood spatter anywhere inside the house. There was no evidence of forced entry into the home, no fingerprints were found in the home or the garage, and no foreign DNA or eyewitnesses tying the suspects to the crime scene were found. A robbery was ruled out as there was nothing stolen. So what was the motive for the murders? Diving into the Dermans' personal lives, investigators could find no one that disliked or hated the couple. Everyone who knew Russell said he was a good guy, not one to do anything unlawful. Of course, the couple's three children were looked at, their sons Keith and Bradley and daughter Leslie, as is procedure. The children were cooperative, all had solid alibis during the time of the murders, and no motive could be found for any of them. They also all took polygraph tests and passed. Investigators hoped that the surveillance footage from the cameras posted at the gated entrance to Great Waters would yield some evidence or footage of the perpetrators. But to their dismay, the cameras were not recording at the time of the murders due to an electrical storm. Although there was a guardhouse at the main entrance to the community, there was no gate keeping visitors from approaching the community from the lake. Looking at the layout to the property, investigators knew that the neighbors would instantly notice any unusual vehicles in the cul-de-sac, but according to the neighbors, no strange vehicles or persons were seen in that area around the time of the murders. It was then theorized that the suspects could have arrived at the house from the Dermans' private boat dock. The Dermans sold their boat a few years prior, so the dock remained empty. And as there was no forced entry evident, the perpetrators could have possibly even rang the couple's doorbell and were let inside voluntarily. Due to the couple's substantial wealth, investigators dove into their finances. The couple had a net worth of about $1.5 million. The Dermans didn't have any enemies, and there was no one in their past business deals that they owed money to, or where there were sketchy business deals that had been done, and nothing was found to indicate that anyone would want to harm this elderly couple. The evidence at the crime scene showed that Russell more than likely was killed elsewhere other than his home, as there was no other blood anywhere in or around the home, but it was proved that his head was removed in the garage. It was believed that Shirley was killed elsewhere as well, before her body was dumped in the lake. Sheriff Sills also believes that more than one person committed the crime. Here's the sheriff explaining his theory on why he thinks more than one person was involved. What can you say in as much detail as you can about why you suspect there may be more than one culprit? Well, it's really, 
it's simplistic, really, at least from our eyes from that standpoint. You have Mr. Derman's body in the garage, and it's decap it's, it's, the body's decapitated. And that, uh, I mean, I've certainly uh, butchered deer and things like that before. That takes a little effort to do that, uh, even if the person's not alive. And then we have Mrs. Derman's body in the lake, five miles away, at least five miles away, uh, down towards, uh, uh, over on the Greene County side of the lake. And while it's possible, you know, but you've got two people that are separated now. You've got a woman that weighed approximately 150 pounds. Uh, she was, we know she was killed before she was, you know, placed in the water. We do know that from the autopsy. Uh, plus she was struck in the head. It's just, it's just very unlikely, in my opinion, that one person did that. You know, you could, you know, you, know, you, you might have the drop on me, but if you're going to kill my wife or you're going to, you know, I'm going to fight with you. Or if there's nobody but me, you're going to shoot me in the back because if, if I can't do anything else, I'm going to try to run. But, but I'm just saying it's, uh, once again, I use the term frequently, when we look at the totality of it, it certainly uh, indicates to me that uh, more than one person was involved in. Also, no murder weapon, no gun, and no knife that was assumed to have been used to remove Russell's head was ever found. Authorities theorized that it could have been a robbery gone wrong. The killer or killers thinking the Dermans had cash on hand or possibly a safe. There's actually quite a bit of elderly people out there who are targeted due to the fact that they tend to keep their cash, not in banks, but in their homes. It was possible someone broke into the home looking for valuables or money and killed the couple when nothing could be found or obtained in a quick amount of time. If the Dermans saw the perpetrators and could identify them, then something had to be done about that. Sheriff Sills had narrowed down the time frame of when the crime occurred to somewhere between 4.30 p.m. on Friday, May 2nd, when the mail was delivered, to 4 p.m. on Saturday, May 3rd, when the couple failed to show up for the Kentucky Derby party. So let's talk about motive. Why would someone want this sweet elderly couple dead without taking anything from the house or their property? Was Shirley initially taken as hostage or maybe a ransom and it didn't go as planned? The theories that are out there include involvement by a New Jersey mob or a drug dealer seeking revenge or even possibly a family member. But all of these theories were looked into and none of them panned out. The couple also had no major issues in their marriage or any signs of mental or physical illnesses. The investigation had authorities going through pages and pages of phone records and hundreds of pictures and interviews, and everyone has been cleared. With no clear motive and no suspects, the case has seemingly gone cold. Since the investigation began, only a single witness had come forward. In 2015, someone reported to police that he saw a man on the Dermans' lawn around the time of the murders. The person that reported that information was investigated and found that some of his answers to police questions were inconsistent, 
so nothing ever resulted from that information. In a strange twist of fate, the Dermans' son, Mark, who had a criminal history and had been arrested in New York in the 1980s, was killed in the year 2000 in a shootout over a drug deal in Atlanta, Georgia. He was attempting to purchase crack cocaine. It was his 47th birthday. Investigators looked into Mark's drug past for any connection to his parents' murders, but found nothing. Mark also wasn't particularly close to either parent. Mark's killer was convicted and is currently in prison. In May 2021, Sheriff Howard Sills of the Putnam County Sheriff's Office announced an update to the case, stating that he was working on additional data with the assistance of the FBI, and due to advances in technology, the data may lead to a suspect or suspects. The sheriff said the new lead is the closest concrete-type lead that they've had since the murder investigation began. A more recent update to the case came in May of 2023 when Sheriff Sills confirmed that they had taken evidence to a lab in Houston and are now waiting for the FBI to examine it all. He again stated that their hope is that with new forensic technology that they'll be able to extract additional evidence that will help in the investigation. The sheriff also said that they are continuing to follow up on new leads that may come in. Perpetrators who are involved in crimes like these like to talk, and he's adamant that someone out there knows something about what happened that day in 2014. Currently, there is a $20,000 reward offered by the FBI for information that leads to the killer or killers. Anyone with information is asked to call the Putnam County Sheriff's Office at 706-485-8557 or leave a tip via their website at putnamcountysheriff.com. Unless a suspect is found, we may never know what the motive was for the brutal murders of Russell and Shirley Dermond. It could have been a robbery gone wrong, or it could have been completely random. Brad Dermond, Russell and Shirley's youngest son, believes that the hair found in his father's wound indicates the last heroic act of a loving husband. Brad continues to hold out hope that his parents' case will one day be solved. We may not like how long it may take, but they will be solved. That does it for this episode. Thank you for listening. This case is one of those that will definitely stick with you. Hopefully something will come up, some piece of new evidence or an eyewitness will remember something that will finally be the missing piece to this horrific crime.